Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter and the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins us from France. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news as well as ongoing topics of interest. Tara, welcome. You're in rural France, in the ambient surroundings of your beautiful garden, I gather. I can hear the tweeting of birds Yes, it's a glorious late summer morning, um, but I have absolutely given up on les pigeons and trying to persuade them to be quiet for our recording. So we'll just have to put up with some... (laughs) some of those sounds. Well, look, we're both hail from a journalism background, so I'm really excited about our guest on today's podcast, one of the most prominent female journalists, not just in South Africa, but really across the whole continent, the Daily Maverick's Feral Hafiji. Uh, we'll be talking to her about state corruption, presidential resilience, as the ANC grows more fragmented by the day. We'll also talk to Feral about personal courage in the face of hate campaigns peddled by PR guys in the pay of some fairly unscrupulous characters. First, though, Tara, let's take a listen to some of the stories in the news which have dominated since our last podcast. The most prominent Russian opposition leader is in a coma on a ventilator. Alexei Navalny is the latest enemy of Vladimir Putin to fall victim to possible poisoning. And there may be a connection to the growing protests in neighboring Belarus. Major banks in South Africa are working with credit ratings agency Experian and the South African Banking Risk Center to identify those customers impacted by the credit data breach. Now police in Mombasa have arrested five protesters who are demonstrating against the alleged theft of COVID-19 fans. The finance minister Titumbuweni keeps getting himself into trouble over his views on Twitter that are in contrast with the government and the ANC. Now his boss, the president, has had to do damage control as the outspoken Mboweni threatens to mobilize against the Zambian president, Edgar Lungu. The World Health Organization has declared Africa wild polio-free. Nigeria, the final country on the 54-nation African continent where the disease was endemic, recorded its last case more than three years ago. Well, one of the stories that really has made quite an impact on the continent is the coup. And I think we must call it a coup. It's in Mali. President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, also known as IBK, forced to stand down and dissolve parliament, staring down the barrel of a gun from the National Committee for the Salvation of the People, really a military junta that sees power in their words in order to install true democracy and obey the will of the people. Um, not so sure how much we, we follow that. But um, the key issues, of course, in Mali were corruption, lack of resources for the military to be able to fight the jihadist insurgency, all brought to a head, really, in the middle of a pandemic. Should we have seen this coup coming, Tara? Well, it is the second time it's happened. You know, the military intervened in Mali some eight years ago and largely for the same reasons, you know, bad pay, bad equipment, uh, corruption of the uh, civil, the civilian government and a deteriorating situation, security situation in the north of the country. But what's new about this time is that there have been a series of rolling popular protests mainly in the capital but also uh, elsewhere you know in some of the uh, uh, some of the rural towns and you know again what's new about this one is that a lot of that unrest and that um, popular discontent is apparently 
uh, been fanned by two popular northern imams um, who um, have really gained ground as as Mali has become has moved really in those eight intervening years from being a secular, a largely secular country to being one much more religious, uh, a much more religious country that uh, is is really moved much more to a sort of. Uh, a more conservative Islam. I'm quite staggered, though, that this happened when there are peacekeepers, what, 15,000 peacekeepers in Bamako as part of the uh, UN stabilisation mission, Mimusa. It's happened right under their noses. But then, of course, you look to countries like South Sudan, where there was an attempt to coup in 2013. There were also peacekeepers there. So it does seem a very, very restive time. You also wonder how much, uh, you know, that... Um, prominent amongst that, uh, those the forces that are operating out of Mali are French forces, of course, and one wonders, you know, how much they they knew, and well, it's inconceivable that they didn't know about it, or didn't know it was likely to occur, and from from what we understand is that very senior members of the military were involved. This was not a junior officer's coup. It actually had backing of, uh, of top brass as well. But I think it also reflects a very different Franco-African relations. You know, President Emmanuel Macron has been very clear over the years that he wants to normalise or modernise the Franco-African relationship from its kind of neo-colonial uh, control of, of the post-independence period. Although France maintains an extraordinarily extraordinary influence through uh, the backing of its currency, of the currency that's used in 14 of West Africa's countries, um, he at least has ended that practice where foreign policy relating to Africa was run from the French, the Elysee Palace, the President's Palace in Paris. And that is a fundamental shift. It's very interesting. I tell you what was also interesting is the fact that the regional body, ECOWAS, has come down very hard. They've imposed sanctions. A lot of people saying because they've got half an eye on what's happening what's next door uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, where President Ouattara uh, plans to throw his hat in the ring, having shifted the constitution to permit him to do that. You're absolutely right. The big um, concern is neighbouring Côte d'Ivoire, where in recent days we've seen at least two people killed as political tensions have escalated around the opposition strongholds near the commercial capital Abidjan. And this is also the, you know, President Alassane Ouattara's announcement that at 78 he intends to run for another term has actually sparked, you know, quite a lot of popular protest. But in it, his main objective, I think, is to keep his one-time coalition partner, Henri Conan Bédier, out of power. And it's really, it has become reduced to hostility between these two men. You know, um, even though there are several capable opposition candidates, three of whom resigned from Ouattara's party, having been denied their opportunity to run for the presidency. So again, coming back to whether the international community will actually tolerate another term of, uh, of Ouattara. Well, I mean, there are two questions here. A is whether Ivoirians will tolerate another term of, uh, of Alassane Ouattara and whether the international community will turn a blind eye to this constitutional sleight of hand. Yes, we could uh, name a number of countries which have uh, 
gone down exactly the same route. Well, I suspect that uh, we'll be talking much, much more about Cote d'Ivoire in the weeks ahead. Tara, really interesting to talk about this. Thank you very much indeed for your insights. That's my pleasure. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa Focus podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Our guest on this week's podcast is a phenomenal woman, a journalist with an impressive track record at breaking powerful stories, but also advocating for women in the media, in South Africa and globally, and for being an outspoken critic of the abuse of power. She's run, amongst other things, the Mail and Guardian newspaper, went on to edit a prominent Sunday paper, City Press, sits on the National Editors Forum in South Africa, and is now an associate editor of the newspaper, the online publication, soon-to-be newspaper as well in real terms, The Daily Maverick. More on that a bit later, I think. First of all, though, welcome, Ferial. Very good to be with you both. Really, really nice to have you. I know Tara and I both got to know you independently of each other. Um, that's been the case with a few guests, actually. I think... Tara knew you when you were a junior reporter uh, back in the day. I think I met you when you'd just taken over at City Press at a dinner with four or five other characters, all of whom became exceptional journalists and editors in their own right. And and since then, you've been something of a go-to person for me personally when I've been trying to understand South African politics. And you continue to do that to this day. Hope that's enough gushing, Ferial. That's too lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Gush away. (laughs) Look, you know, it's very hard to begin a conversation about South Africa and about South African politics without mentioning this word state capture, grand corruption, um, which you've written extensively about. And of course, COVID-19 has seen the most rapacious looting of state funds. Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, trying to rein in his troops, so to speak. I think at the weekend he read his party, the Riot Act, basically saying we've got to do something about this and described the ANC as being accused number one in the dock when it comes to corruption. Are we actually seeing a change of tack or is this, is he able to shake the party up or is he very much just trying to play to the audience to who desperately want to see corruption reigned in in South Africa? For me, the letter was obviously a very interesting one where he wrote directly to members of the governing party and said, look, people, we're in the dock. And I think he's obviously had his eye on, for me, almost unprecedented public reaction and anger against the corruption and the stealing Um, the cronyism that's been apparent in how billions and billions of rands of funding for the COVID-19 relief fund have already shown themselves to be um, corrupted. But for others, it has been business as usual. And I think for the president to take the step is him at least having his ear to the ground and understanding how very angry uh, people are. Um, I don't really buy the letter. I think it's uh, politics and that he could do more effective things using his ample presidential powers to um, crack down on the corruption that really is congealing our country. And it's corruption not just in terms of state capture, which I know we're going to ask you a little bit more about, but it's people not being accountable. I mean, there is a former mayor of um, one of the municipalities here who's out on bail for corruption. She's just been reappointed to go and sit on the provincial legislature. I mean, that seemed chutzpah is kind of not enough to describe it. I mean, is there a sense that people are hutful, which is also, I'm using this wonderful Afrikaans word, which means basically up to the, uh, fed up, right? Um, But really just had enough. 
do you think do you think people have reached that point absolutely i think that it's it's very important that we've seen this naked corruption during a public health emergency um, because what it's brought home to people is that there absolutely is no shame that the eating is so it's it happens from the ground up from the um, local government to the provincial government which is our kind of federal layer um, to the national government that that is just the way business is done in the ANC so the state is a huge player in the economy here it spends about 500 billion rand um, and you can work out what that is in dollars at the moment and it's around that that you've seen these concentric circles of patronage networks developing. Um, To my mind, it's so entrenched that I'm not sure that the ANC is the party that's able to take us into a different kind of future. Ferial, that's a a damning and um, a damning indictment really on the ANC and indeed on the report card of Cyril Ramaphosa. I mean, there have been some changes, for example, his attempt to restore uh, the the justice system, which has had some success, has it not? Yes, to be fair, a number of key institutions like the National Prosecuting Authority, the Hawks, which is, I guess, our version of, of the FBI, a number of other institutions, the state-owned enterprises where the largest corruptions or state capture happened, all of them have new leaders in place. But I guess the key thing is that there hasn't been a single um, prosecution of a political bigwig, which I think is the signaler of a seriousness about the fight against corruption. I feel like his reform effort has lost momentum and this corruption of the COVID-19 relief funds seems to have tipped um, people over the edge in ways that I've not seen before. Can I ask you, Ferial, when did you get that sense that he was losing momentum? Because I was quite a big Sora Ramaphosa fan, I have to say. You could see that he was trying. And yeah, I remember sort of getting into quite a lot of arguments with people who thought that I was being too soft on him. But for you, at what point did you start thinking, ah, oh, man, you know, he's going back to being this kind of consensus politician who isn't prepared to make those difficult decisions? Well, Cyril Ramaphosa has always been a a consensus seeker. He's very much a big tent president. He believes in keeping everybody inside. Um, He views fixing the governing ANC as being key to fixing um, South Africa. And I guess it's been a process rather than an event where you realize that his set of leadership smarts um, is classically what got you here won't get you there and that he needed to make active choices and be able to take out uh, perceived allies who, who in fact are part of these networks. And I guess my, um, my, my, the beginning of my questioning of his reform initiatives is, is largely been on the economy and specifically on his inability to drive a more um, coherent restructuring of the energy market so that what we've had now is both COVID-19 and also very clearly that ESCOM, the key energy utility, um, is very, very far from a fix. So even when the economy was barely at restart, maybe at about 10, 20, uh, 25, 30% of 
capacity, you're still so load shedding. And I think that was one of those moments as, as well as the COVID-19 corruption, which has now become clear is, is quite a national phenomenon, um, has, big, has, has dampened the mood against him. But where from here, Ferial? Because, um, you know, they, the, the one thing that Cyril Ramaphosa did when he came into power is he wiped out the opposition. Uh, you know, the the uh, EFF is very much the uh, Economic Freedom Front led by Julius Malema, a sort of populist hothead in South Africa, has really f- failed to make a dent in the last elections. The, you know, the sort of uh, traditional and, and pr- prominent opposition, the Democratic Alliance, is in disarray. And really the only opposition, therefore, is internally... And that brings up the dreaded question of the deputy president and the what you, I think, named as the Premier League. I wonder, could you let us know what the Premier League is and the opposition from within? Uh, where is it going to go? Well, Tara, I guess where to from here is we're not on the edge of a collapse, but what's incredibly sad is that we're in that South African holding pattern, which seems to be muddling along. So we never quite take off where there are so many areas of of enormous potential, and those can be in green energy. They could be in superfood exports. Um, they Well, tourism's taken a massive knock, as it has everywhere in the world, but we are producers of rhodium. We are producers of resources that the, the world re- really needs at the moment. But in each of those areas, there's such vast policy uncertainty that you just have this muddling along, a lack of investment, a lack of business confidence. And so where to? Well, it's likely that the local government election, which is a kind of a marker, is, is, was, which was supposed to happen next year, is, is going to be postponed to synchronize um, all our elections. And you can literally see all the political, the key political parties breathing a sigh of li- relief, because as you've said, each of them is, each of the major ones is in significant disarray. So if, if I'm to uh, paint a kind of what's a future political landscape looking like, you're seeing civil society again launching a massive anti-corruption campaign. I think it's going to be your civil society and your media again, which uh, take up the major, the, the major slack um, in this moment and, and almost act like the, the de facto check on power or the de facto um, official opposition. Um, you asked about the Premier League. It's not a force any longer because all three of the premiers who were the parts of it, that of three of the different provinces, they're all in different jobs now. But you do see one of them who is a man called Ace Mahashule. He's the head of the party, not the head of the government of the ANC um, at its headquarters. Every opportunity he gets, and I've counted six times now, he sticks the knife in Ramaphosa. I think he's actively creating political chaos um, and, and his strategy is to, is to me perfectly clear. It's, it's the creation of chaos so that reform can't happen. And the reform has to come within the ANC, right? Because 
the opposition is so weak, as, as Tara has been, been saying, that really that is because so many South Africans will still vote for the ANC, even if they don't like the party, even if they're disappointed with its deliverables, that is where the change has to come. Um, you know, I have a slightly different view. I, I wrote an analysis the other week that the president now has to make a choice between fixing the ANC or fixing the country. If he was to govern without his eye on political factions on and on whether he's going to win a second term, I think he could do really interesting things by using um, a political presidential power to drive uh, um, to, to to make sure that the prosecutions begin to happen, um, to to use all the different anti-corruption arsenal um, at his disposal. Um, you could use tax laws, for example. So you should you could see him being far more forthright. And maybe this letter he wrote um, at the weekend, and now we're at the end of August, just to give you a sense of of where we are signals that he is going to do that, that he understands how damaging this has been for his presidency. Many people acknowledge when you speak to him, uh, speak to them, that he, that the health response to COVID-19 has been decent. It hasn't been the madness of a Donald Trump. It hasn't been the crazy denialism of Brazil's Bolsonaro. Um, it hasn't been Tanzania's Magafuli. Um, all of whom engaged quackery and populism. It's been a science-led response, and you actually see all the numbers heading in the right direction, although the next two weeks will tell us where things are. We're likely to now have 12 million unemployed people. That's unprecedented. And government is now paying out 22 million uh, social grants a month uh, to poor South Africans. That's up by about... Um, just over ten percent than before COVID, and you've got to ask, you've got to ask yourself. I think how sustainable is is yes. that um, going and forward? And then there are the the non South Africans yes. who are other Africans who are actually maybe illegal. Yes, um, and they are. We've seen some terrible video footage of uh, of of thousands of people queuing for food. Is there anything more being done for them? Um, much of the state relief was only for South Africans. Xenophobia is really a, a rising threat to look at at the moment. Um, the other, um, at the last week, my colleague Jessica Bzaidenot wrote an excellent piece in, in the Daily Maverick on how there's a South African first movement, which is a, a nationalist movement against immigrants, really gathering strength team on um, social media. And you can see it coming into the formal spectrum where a politician called Herman Mashaba, who used to be the mayor of Johannesburg, is campaigning on an openly nationalist anti-foreigner ticket. Farrell, I'm glad you've brought that up, actually, because, I mean, the, the whole amplification possibilities of social media... Um, of being able to amplify some of those messages and those extremist narratives is really quite frightening. And I see, we, you know, we are seeing that come into its own through the xenophobic prison. I wanted to ask you, actually, I mean, you clashed horns in the past with the, um, the, the former PR firm Bell Pottinger, uh, which sought to deflect attention away from uh, the alleged corrupt practices of, of the Guptas. Well, I don't think we need to say alleged anymore, do we? It's fairly well established um, who they were working for. And you and a, a couple of other journalists were really abused, hauled through the coals in a very 
uh, public campaign of humiliation, if you like. Um, and that was before we really started talking about disinformation campaigns in the way that we talk now. Can you give us a little bit of an insight as to how that affected you personally, but also give us a bit of an insight into your views about the prospect, given the fact we have got elections coming in the next few years, the prospects of further disinformation campaigns? Thank you for asking that, Karen. Just the other day I was clearing out cards um, and I cleared out my, my cards I'd gotten from, from some young guns who Bell Pottinger had sent over at the time to work with the Guptas. <laughs> And, and they were such um, <laughs> smarmy bastards. I was quite happy that... Um, that you can say that. that. You can say that you. on here. Uh, <laughs> it's not that, the BBC. Um, it's fine. Thank you. I was, um, I w- I was quite pleased to realise that um, with the passage of time, they'd really come a cropper. I mean, that firm is no more. Um, um, a few of us t- uh, tried to sue them, but then... They went insolvent. And I think what that moment did, not only here, but across the continent and, and certain, certainly in the world, is make all of us aware about the ability of social media to to impact um, elections and to, to impact democracy. And since then, you've really seen pressure come to bear on the platform companies to, to to do better to get those messages off their platforms, which really Facebook and Twitter yeah, are the are the biggest hosts to anti xenophobia, anti democratic um campaigns. I have found though that sitting here and I think I mentioned to you Karen is it's it's almost they're almost neo colonial in their in their attitude. So they maybe would be more they would listen more in the US or the UK uh, or at least the platform companies would appear to be more concerned. But here you've seen um you've seen Cambridge Analytica first working in Kenya and Zambia. Um you've seen Bell Pottinger perfect its arts in Iraq and in South Africa. Um, so I think these are um, the works of constant vigilance for those of us in the media and in civil society who must watch for these things because it can spread so quickly and amplify so fast um, on our continent with the rapid uptake of, of social media um, platforms here. Really interesting stuff. And I, I mean, let's be honest, the three of us are not exactly digital natives. We've had to learn this stuff as we go along. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Being very respectful to all of our mature years. But um, Maturity. It is, it's just, it's quite mm. frightening how, how much someone who would otherwise, or a narrative that otherwise would be, you know, three men in a soapbox would have the most extra, and I'm afraid it is largely men, but not exclusively so, can have such an incredibly powerful effect on social media, which people do follow. I mean, I think what is quite interesting is that there is so much of a of a pushback on this as well. And I, I, I think there is, uh, but, you know, as you said, Ferial, there are people are now much more aware of how to identify the bots, how to identify um, how to identify and block. And I, I read your Huffington Post piece um, uh, detailing your personal experience, which was pretty horrific. You know, there is, there is a backlash, which has also moved into the big corporates who have actually stopped advertising on these platforms until they get their house in order, which is is moving in the right direction but there is no doubt um the uh this uh, uh artificial intelligence and the 
uh, and this uh, mass you know misuse of platforms is still remains a big threat um absolutely um I mean, I've done a, a, a lot of work trying to study how these um, armies work, and often there'll be state actors who are at the top of it. So Philippines, a, a key example, India, another example. But the pattern um, in, in South Africa and in other countries where there's good connectivity is for non-state actors, so really political oppositions, or lobbies to to use the platforms um, in in the ways that we've seen it done, and in South Africa the the easiest um, the easiest one to leverage is race, um, because people still feel such a great sense of being victimized uh, by the past. Uh, you can really put out a race lobby, so it really requires that we have digital sleuths who can notice the stuff, start tracking it, um, start putting it down, analyzing it, and then getting it out of the, 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 the out of social media as quickly as possible. But that does require that the platforms realize this and, and are more uh, responsive to it. Because my own experience in trying to report on the platforms, be it Facebook or Twitter, is that because you're sitting in South Africa, you're hitting up against a chatbot probably run out of India with no knowledge of why this is dangerous and you would just get a rote answer back. Feral Hafferty, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. We've really appreciated it and it's been really interesting. And, you know, please carry on being our guide and carry on um, holding power to account, as we say in South Africa. Kind words. Lovely to chat to my two sheroes. Bless you. All right. Take <laughs> care, Feral. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. So, Tara, what a treat. I, I am a big Feral fan and she is extremely well respected in South Africa, I have to say. You know, even people that she may be criticising in politics, I think, you know, if there was a show of hands, she would certainly get a huge majority of people of power doffing their caps to her. Absolutely. And I'm delighted she called us her Shiro's as she is yes. one of mine. <laughs> I have never heard the word Shiro before. Is that it? I have never heard the word. Have I been living in a cave? I think it's a wonderful word. <laughs> it's wonderful. From one Shiro to another, Tara, it's been lovely talking to you once again. Look forward to our next podcast. Likewise, Karen. Thank you very much once again. A great podcast. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces a daily chronology of events, as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.